Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of Relationship Radio. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing itstartswithattraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itstartswithattraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. So sometimes people say they're madly in love with someone else. We in the social sciences actually have a term for that. We call it limerence. Now, occasionally I talk about the three phases or stages of limerence and it brings about a whole lot of questions from people like, hey, can you tell me if my spouse is in phase one or phase two or phase three? Or maybe you yourself, if you feel that you're madly in love with someone, you're asking yourself the question, am I in phase one, phase two, phase three? Well, believe it or not, I don't know that it really matters, but because people are curious about it, we'll talk about it right here in just a few minutes. Hey everyone, this is Kimberly (laughs) Holmes here, here with Dr. Joe Beam, and I'm excited for today's topic. Well, since you chose today's topic, you ought to be. I did choose today's topic because here's why, because we have so many people who are wanting to know more about what we call limerence, what we, um, is the term that we use for when someone is falling madly in love with someone else. And our current audience at Marriage Helper, a lot of our, these people are experiencing this in their marriage. Either their spouse Mm -hmm. is going through it, um, Mm -hmm. to a lesser extent, maybe they're personally experiencing this. But even if you just look back at prior podcasts we've done, prior shows, we see the spike in people wanting to know more about limerence, every show that has to do with that. And so Mm -hmm. previously, we did a podcast talking about the three stages of limerence, falling madly in love with someone else. And it had such amazing traffic and listenership that I said, let's split this up into three different episodes. So today we're experiencing number one, where we're going to be talking about stage one of limerence, of falling madly in love with someone else. Next week, we'll talk about stage two, and the week after, we'll talk about stage three. But today is all about that first stage. Okay, now understand this. When we talk about falling madly in love, this could be applicable to an individual who is single, that you meet this other person, and over a period of time, you start, quote, falling in love with each other, and it evolves into madly in love with each other. But today, as we talk about it, even though it will apply to you if you're single, uh, we're going to be talking about it more in the context of, suppose that two people are married to each other. And one of them then begins to develop this relationship with somebody else. Now, if that's the case, if that's what's happening, uh, what are these three phases? So it may be that you're married and you're beginning to develop this relationship with someone else. And you want to know what's happening to me? Why am I feeling these things? Or more likely, it's the fact that your spouse has told you that he or she is no longer in love with you. Or, Or that old famous, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. But you've discovered that there is someone else and your spouse is very romantically, emotionally connected to that person. And you're trying to understand why. Now, as we explain this first phase, let me give you a warning. We want to educate you about limerence. We want you to understand more about it. But if you think, oh, wow, I'm going straight to my spouse and explain to him or to her all about this limerence and that will fix everything, you're mistaken. As a matter of fact, if you try to explain it to your spouse and he or she really is in limerence, the great likelihood is it's actually going to work against you. 
And we can talk more about that later, particularly if you ask some questions. But right now, understand that what we're sharing is for you to understand. And if you decide you want to explain it to your spouse, who may be in limerence, it's probably going to work not too well, right? That's absolutely right. I am very glad that you started the show with the warning and disclaimer as opposed to the end where people don't listen because they're too excited and they've already shared it. Yeah, they've already gone. <laughs> <laughs> they've already done what they shouldn't have done. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about this, this first stage. Um, mm-hmm. What is it? Well, I call the first stage infatuation. Now let me explain what I mean by that. It's that you begin to develop a relationship with another person. And to begin with, it's not that intense. Now, are there people who can fall instantly, automatically, deeply in love with somebody else? It's a possibility, but it's not a likelihood. And therefore, even though some of the information you find, if you look up the word limerence on the internet, you're going to see all kinds of things out there by all kinds of people that claim that they really understand this. I even saw a counselor, I watched a video that he did where he was explaining limerence and he was saying, well, it's always just this instant sudden thing. Sometimes, but rarely, which tells me that that particular counselor didn't understand much about it. It can happen actually very gradually. What it is in this infatuation stage is that you find the other person attractive in some fashion. It can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, or spiritually. By the way, people might want to look that up. It's called PIES, P-I-E-S. We've done other podcasts mm-hmm. about it, and we can explain that in more detail there. But at the outset, you find yourself kind of enamored of this other person, and you just want to be around him or her. As a matter of fact, you start finding more excuses to be around him or her. If you have great proximity to each other, like for example, if this is the couple that you're best friends, then often you do have opportunity to be around the other person, or or maybe you work together, and now you're finding reasons to go down the hall and be in his or her office, or make sure you see him or her at the water cooler, or make sure that you sit at the same table with him or her during lunch. And it starts off where that you are, because you find this person attractive, and you hope that by reciprocity, he or she is finding you attractive, you want to just be around that person. And that's how it starts. So it doesn't necessarily at the outset mean that anything's going to occur. And infatuation hasn't set in in depth yet. It's just you find yourself attracted to this person. And because you think to yourself, I'm a good person, he or she's a good person, would never do anything wrong then you don't really put any barriers and you begin to develop this relationship more and more, particularly if he or she is in a couple that's like your best friends and you have a lot of access to each other and you're thinking this is just friendship. So it starts off relatively Mm. innocently. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the things you mentioned was the pies. Mm -hmm. So you're attracted to someone. And a lot of times when we think of attraction, we think I find them physically attractive. Which is a possibility. Which Mm -hmm. is a possibility. But what I think that I'd I'd love for you to expand on, because I I see this happening and can see this being Mm -hmm. an issue, is there's, let's talk about the best friend scenario. Okay. So me and my husband, his name is Rob. We're best friends with a couple. Let's call them John and Amy. We don't have friends named John and Amy, but let's just call them that. So let's say that um, we start hanging out with John and Amy. John is not physically attractive to me. I don't find him physically attractive. He's not my type. But when we're around each other, he's funny. I, you know, he makes me feel special because he'll ask me about how my day is, how work's going, whatever. And so over time, but I, I, the whole time I'm thinking, no, Rob, I'm not attracted to him. 
-hmm. because physically I am not attracted to him. Right. You see, physical attraction is most important when people are looking for a short-term relationship. Mm. Now, physical attraction is important even in a long-term relationship, don't misunderstand, but the thing that's more important in a longer-term relationship is not the physical attraction, but the emotional attraction. What that means is this person does things, says things, whatever, that evokes, that evoke emotions within me that I enjoy feeling. And so if he's funny and, and you're around this John character in this imaginary story mm -hmm. because of the fact that he can make you laugh, that's one emotion, but probably then you start having other emotions evoked as well. Uh, you start feeling very secure. Maybe you feel even prettier when you're around him. You begin to think, he understands what I feel better than my husband does. Now, you haven't articulated these thoughts. Mm -hmm. It's just what you're feeling inside. You haven't even, you haven't written them down. You haven't even said them out loud. It's just like, I really enjoy being around John because when I do, I feel better about me. Therefore, I am more and more attracted to John. Now, it doesn't become limerence until it starts getting strong. But at that point, if you find yourself wanting to be around him or her more, mm -hmm. and particularly if you find yourself thinking about him or her, mm -hmm. oh, well, I remember what he said the other day. That was really funny. I remember I felt when we talked about this, when you do those things, that's when the danger's already started. Now, you don't want to put a barrier up at this point because it just feels good. Plus, we're good people. Nothing bad's going to happen. But then that thinking starts to become more obsessive. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is you start really having great memories about the time that you were with each other. You find yourself wanting more experiences with each other, looking for more opportunities to be there. And then, and this is the real killer, when you finally get to the point where you start daydreaming about not what has happened, but what might happen. Hmm. Like, wow, you know, if we were to take a trip with John and Amy, John and I would have a lot of fun because we'd wind up talking about, and then we'd probably find some way to get off with each other to go look at the lake because I just like being with him when nobody else is around and I'm looking for those opportunities. That's when you're already in trouble hmm. because the infatuation level is beginning to get stronger and stronger. My emotional longing. Now, this is one of the keys to limerence is a strong emotional longing for reciprocity with this person. In other words, I want him and her to care about me as deeply as I care about him or her. And in that phase, you really start intensifying this relationship, finding more time to be together, more things to talk about, more daydreaming, not just about what you have done together, but what you could do together. And it starts turning into kind of a fantasy world. You've already crossed the boundaries, the barriers. Now, interestingly, if you're single and the other person's not bad for you, the only downside of this is a lack of productivity. <laughs> what I mean by that is that you start not being very effective at the things you're doing because it's so important to you to be around this person or think about this person, this obsessive thinking. Mm -hmm. But when you're married, here's where the problem comes because emotionally speaking, this person starts supplanting your spouse. And that's typically then when we find vacillation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So at this point though, mm -hmm. I don't know that John has feelings back for me. That's right. You may not. And ev so even if he doesn't, all of this still could lead down this path. Absolutely. Because at some point, if he begins to realize that you had these kind of emotions for him, he's going to do one of two things. Well, actually one of three. One is ignore it. 
-hmm. Like, eh, it's not a big deal. The other is run from it, mm -hmm. like pulling away from you, or the other is responding to it and getting closer to you. Now, let's talk about this vacillation for a minute. What do you think okay. I mean when I say you start vacillating? Well, see, I kind of already know. Okay. <laughs> but, then, then, then say it. But it's a word that, I mean, the, uh, the regular public, so to say, that's not a word we use a lot, vacillation. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's a little too scholarly for us okay. common folks. Forgive me, forgive me. <laughs> But vacillation means that you're going back and forth about whether or not you should do this is basically mm -hmm. what it means. Right. And so it kind of looks like this. If, if you're going through this first phase, it's not like a straight line up like this. Okay. It's more like this because you're going in and out of it. Like, oh, I want to be closer to you. No, this is not a good idea. I need to pull away. And now some other things have got my attention, but now I'm thinking about you again. And so it kind of goes like this. Now, when it gets closer to the top of phase one, where you're about to start into phase two, and phase two is what we'll talk about in the next program next week. Mm -hmm. Phase two is called crystallization, and it has its own unique things going on up there. And, and again, that's next week's topic. But when you get up here, you'll start moving back down again if you're committed to some, uh, another person, like a husband or wife. It's like, oh my goodness, I shouldn't do this. This is wrong. Now, if the other person has been going into limerence just like you have been, then when you try to pull away, they inevitably will pull you back. Not because they're evil people, not because they're trying to destroy your marriage, but because of the fact that they're feeling some of these same things as well. Now, in this process, what you've started doing is opening up emotionally and telling this other person, in your case, this imaginary John, you're telling this other person all kinds of things about what you think, what you feel, what you've experienced, what you want to experience, your daydreams, not necessarily at this point, the daydreams about each other, but the daydreams about your future. Like, this is what I wish I could do. And at some point you start self-revealing to him or her more, at least you appear to be more, than you've ever self-revealed to anybody else. Like I've told you things that I've never told anybody else. You understand things about me that nobody else has ever heard. I, I can tell you this because I know you get me. You understand me. Wow. This is the relationship I was meant to have because of the fact that nobody else has ever understood me like you do, even my husband or my wife. And then you start feeling guilty again, like, no, 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 we're crossing boundaries. We shouldn't do this. And you start pulling away again. But because you have so been uh, transparent and open and vulnerable, this other person knows a whole lot about you and therefore knows how to pull you back. Again, not because they're evil, not because they necessarily, at least at this point, want to end your marriage or if he or she's married, his or her marriage, but because of the fact that it just feels so good, please don't abandon me, please don't leave me. And as you go up, it's kind of three steps forward, two steps back, then two steps to the side and a step back this way and over there. It moves around a lot. It's not this linear thing like, boom, it happens overnight suddenly. Mm -hmm. It's an evolution and an evolution that if you're in a committed relationship, you probably have tried to pull out of a few times, but it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, as that happens, you start justifying this like, well, I know I shouldn't do this, but man, this feels so good. And the fact that you didn't put up barriers or boundaries to begin with, because we're both good people, we won't do anything wrong. Now you don't want to put them up because it just feels so good. I don't want to lose this. You still may be trying to convince yourself 
we'll never cross the real boundaries. We'll never really do anything wrong. But as this emotion gets more intense, more powerful, stronger and stronger, it's going to do one of two things. Either you're going to wind up and have uh, what people typically call an emotional affair, which means it doesn't turn sexual or at some point it's going to turn sexual, typically somewhere still in this first phase. And when it does, you're going to feel very guilty about it. But even though you think, oh my goodness, God, please forgive me. I'll never be able to tell anybody else about this because nobody would understand. Maybe even the two of you are on your knees in prayer. Oh God, we're so sorry we did this. Please forgive us. We promise you will never do it again. And you mean that when you say that prayer. Mm. You start remembering how good that emotional connection feels. And so you wind up meeting each other again. And if you have been sexual once, it is extremely likely that you're going to be sexual again. And again, and again, over time, if you have opportunity with each other, and now you're coming into this phase two kinds of things that we'll talk about next week. So what we've said so far to summarize, it typically does not happen like that. It can, but it's pretty rare. And typically it goes through this process of, I enjoy this attraction. I enjoy the fact that we're opening up and sharing with each other. It's not about sex. It's about this emotional connection with this other person that begins to supplant and override every other emotional connection that you have, that you have, including if your marriage, the one you have with your husband or wife. And, and it begins to, again, vacillating all the time, going in and out and up and down until finally it reaches up here and you start moving into phase two. But again, phase two is for next week. Yeah. So what kind of questions? Well, so one of the things I'm thinking is in this process of infatuation, the buildup of it, there's got to be a point where either the negatives of your current marriage in this situation start coming to light. Either you're thinking about them more, even if you were happy, even if you were happily married before this, there comes a point where you start seeing only the negatives. Is that true? Yes, but it really is more of a function of phase two. Okay. So toward the end of phase one, mm -hmm. now, and by the way, don't think we can absolutely clearly define these. People ask us all the time, mm -hmm, my husband said this, my wife did this, are they in phase one or phase two? Mm -hmm. Understand these are general principles. We don't have the absolutes like, oh, they're actually 50% into phase one or they're 25% into phase two. I know that people want to know those kinds of things, but we cannot identify that that clearly. Mm -hmm. We don't have that ability. But it's typically up toward the end of phase one and beginning into phase two and further into phase two that that starts happening. Mm -hmm. Now, is there some comparison over here to that person and your spouse if you're married? Yeah. And guess who wins? The, other, the new person. Exactly. And that's when you start seeing the flaws mm. in your current spouse. Mm -hmm. But it really gets the strongest up here in phase two. Okay. So some of it happens here. Yeah. But it becomes more powerful in phase two. Okay, we'll talk about that next week. So some questions that people have coming in. The first question says, in this vacillation stage during infatuation, does it cause anxiety? The person who's experiencing this, what are what kind of things are they feeling? What are they going through? Anxious? Well, it, yes, anxiety in the sense of what the heck am I doing? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll feel like they're out of control, like what's happening to me? I don't even understand what I'm feeling or going through here. And then it will be some guilt like, I know I shouldn't be sneaking off to meet him or sneaking off to meet her. And then some guilt that is involved with that. 
And, and if they get up toward the end of this phase where it gets really powerful and really very strong, and let's say they start crossing some physical boundaries, like I've now kissed this person. I'm married to one person, but I'm now kissing this other person. Or maybe even further than that, we've actually been to bed with each other now. You understand that's a euphemism. <sighs> then the guilt can be overwhelming. And so the first thing that happens is that they, uh, they do compartmentalized thinking. What that means is they, they don't let themselves consciously think about what they're doing. At the same time, they think about what's right or wrong. So my beliefs and values say I should be faithful to my spouse. I shouldn't be involved with somebody else. That's my beliefs and values. What I'm doing is this other person is actually supplanting my spouse. Well, the first thing is just to not let those two things touch each other in your mind. You don't let yourself think about both of them at the same time. Therefore, you tend not to feel guilty. Mm-hmm. But... You can't do that forever. And so when they finally come into conflict with each other, you start feeling what's known as cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance says, cognitive means it's happening up here, okay? Dissonance means disharmony. Uh, You get messed up inside. You, You feel confused. And so the guilt intermingles with the desire. And they kind of pull you both directions at the same time. And you just feel messed up. Like, I can't stop this. When you get toward the end of phase one and start getting into phase two, and again, we'll talk more about that next week, start getting into phase two, you actually feel that you can't control it. You actually feel things like, I can't stop feeling this even if I want to. I can't. I just can't. This is beyond my control. This is amazing. It's powerful. I can't even describe it to anybody else because nobody else has ever felt like this. Now, again, that's at the height of phase one, beginning of phase two. And because you feel out of control, this dissonance just rips into you because my whole belief and value system is you shouldn't cheat on your wife or your husband. You shouldn't do these things. What's going to happen to my kids? How would they think about me if they found out I was doing this? if you have kids, or the people at church, if you're part of a church, or, or the people who are my, even my parents, what would my parents think if they knew what I was doing? And so you have all this stuff mixed up inside, this dissonance going on, you feel confused, you feel guilty. Sometimes you get angry, and sometimes the anger is demonstrated toward you, and sometimes the anger is demonstrated toward your spouse. Sometimes it's demonstrated toward other people in your world, but it's really because you're mad at you, and, and it's like, ah, I wish I had control of myself, but right now I do not. Mm. So for a person who's in this phase, mm-hmm. they're personally going through infatuation. What can they do at this point? They pro- If they're listening to this right now, then they probably don't want to stop it. That's correct. That's probably don't. But they know they should. Perhaps. Yeah, 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 right. So right. what are some key things, some points, some advice, some guidance you would give to that person? Okay. You're not going to like it, (laughs) and you may not do it, but here are some things. Number one is you have to cut off all contact with the other person. Now, sometimes it's hard to do because let's say in the illustration that Kimberly gave, here are their friends, John and Amy, and uh, an imaginary friend, we should say, okay, If they're best friends to her and Rob, then saying to Rob, I don't want anything else to do with John and Amy, Rob's going to be saying, well, why? Mm -hmm. And you really don't want to explain why. And so it can be awfully difficult to make happen because you're thinking, I'm trying to keep this secret. I'm trying not to tell my spouse, uh, but I want to cut off all contact and it can be very difficult to do. Or suppose you work at the same place and you're in the same office. Like I'm always going to be seeing her or him. So cutting off all contact can be difficult to do. Mm -hmm. But if you really want to get past this, 
it's part of it. You really do. Now, there's another thing that's happening here, and that's that your brain chemicals are actually changing. Mm -hmm. You're having an increase in dopamine, which is an ecstasy chemical, like, oh man, this is amazing, this intense sensation. You're also having a decrease in serotonin. Among other things, serotonin is a calming chemical. It helps you to calm down, and you're not calm right now. You're kind of agitated. So believe it or not, you can actually go to your physician and ask him or her, uh, would you give me a pretty strong dosage of Zoloft? Zoloft is an SSRI, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. Uh, so what does that do? It actually increases the level of serotonin in your brain. That can help. And it's not, it's not a cure-all. It's not a be-all, end-all, but it can be a help. And if your physician says, why? Why are you asking for an SSRI? You can simply say, I'm very agitated, very much out of control. My emotions are running rampant. That's a probably enough explanation for your physician. And then he or she will prescribe whatever SSRI they think is best for you. I always suggest if you do this, ask for Zoloft and ask for a minimum of 150 milligrams. You say, why? Because if you look at the clinical test, up until then, it doesn't have much difference to a placebo. Wow. So if you're taking less than that, it's probably not going to have much effect anyway. Oh, and it's going to take a couple of three weeks for it to actually kick in as well. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have two or three weeks of, of misery. You just need to understand that's going to happen. But you can ask your physician for that medicine. Now, if it's contraindicated by some medical condition, then he or she's going to say, no, you can't have that because of blank. But if you let them know, I'm agitated, my emotions out of control, I need a control, please help me with that prescription, that actually can help. It's not the cure-all, but it can help. Then you have to cut off all contact with the other person. Now, sometimes that's going to require telling your spouse. Yeah. So I feel like at this point, we should insert one of those prescription drug commercials disclaimers. Where it's <laughs> like, this should not be taken as medical advice, nor... No, we don't you... give medical advice. You have to go see your physician about yes, that. Yes, exactly. And here are all the side effects that Zoloft could have. No, but so just be clear. Um, do talk to your doctor. Don't just try and get that off the street or something well, terrible. Well, hopefully they can't just pick up Zoloft anywhere anyway. You have to get a prescription. Now, here are a couple of things here, though, about that. And again, we are not physicians. We do not write prescriptions. No. So don't and call. so that, that disclaimer is very important. But if you take an SSRI, it may kind of zombie you out a little bit. And some people stop then saying, no, no, I need to feel alive. Sometimes you have to make a decision. Which do I want more? Do I want to be able to control these emotions to stop this before it gets totally out of hand? And if that requires for six weeks, eight weeks, whatever the course may be, feeling a little bit like a zombie then that may be a price that's worth paying to keep you from doing what you're going to do if you don't. Mm -hmm. Now, again, that's what you discuss with your physician. Yeah. And if you trust him or her, you can actually tell them, this is what's going on with me. And, and Dr. Beam said, I should talk to you about this. He readily admits he's not a physician. He does not write prescriptions. And it's up to you to do so. But he also referred to research that indicates that high levels of SSRIs can help deal with this particular emotion. Mm -hmm. And again, leave it up to your doc. I don't make those things. Right. But at some point, you've got to cut off all contact with the other person, which led right. me to where we just took right. a detour. Sometimes you need to tell your spouse. See, so here's my question about that. You say sometimes. Mm -hmm. Why not every time? I think that if you can tell your spouse without completely destroying your marriage, it is the best course of action. Okay. 
So at this point with the infatuation phase, okay, so I guess many things could have happened. Like you could have already been at this point physical um, Mm -hmm. to whatever extent it might be. So it would probably be easier to tell your spouse if it's just still in your mind. Like the earlier you can tell your spouse, the better, right? The earlier, the better. If your marriage is already very rocky, now we're not trying to justify limerence by you're having a bad marriage, but if your marriage is, if your marriage is not good, let's say for example, you're married to a very controlling person. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to you. Now we're, we're using this imaginary illustration with you and Rob. Mm-hmm. Let's say Rob was dominating, controlling, et cetera. And that was part of what made John in this imaginary illustration so attractive to you mm-hmm. and why you responded so much to his emotional mm-hmm. uh, attraction. Yeah. Then going to tell Rob, you're probably going to find that to feel pretty dangerous. Like mm-hmm. I can't tell Rob because he's already dominating and controlling. And if I tell him he's going to go ballistic and, and there's going to be hell to pay. And I don't know if I really can do that or not. Right. So that's why sometimes it's difficult is because of where the other spouse is and how mm-hmm. they're treating it. Now, that doesn't mean that therefore you can't tell them. It does mean that sometimes then you might want to talk to a professional before you do. Hmm. Now that can be a marriage counselor, obviously. We recommend our coaches because they're familiar with limerence. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of marriage counselors aren't. They've just never been trained about it, even though it's been written about and mm-hmm. studied since the 1970s. Um, and I, I, please forgive me if this sounds like a commercial, I don't want it to, but sometimes it can be, you need to talk to somebody who's really understanding this, who can guide you through how, mm-hmm. when, and, and the way that you actually tell your spouse to create the least amount of damage and the most amount of good. For sure. But, but if you can, and if we can help you do that, we'll be glad to tell your spouse without them doing something stupid, like exploding, going, trying to hunt down the other person, all kinds of idiocy like that, then yeah, the help of your spouse can be crucial, absolutely crucial to you overcoming this. The difficulty comes when it's like, "Mm, I think my spouse is going to do something really stupid if I do this. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So if you have to tell your spouse, then doing it, but getting that outside third party guidance to help you do it because it's navigating through harsh waters mm-hmm. many times. Absolutely. It is. And yet that can be downright scary. Mm-hmm. Now there have been people that have stopped it, ended it, and their spouse never did know about it ever. Now, if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, are you encouraging me to keep secrets from my spouse to lie to him or her? I'm never going to encourage you to lie. But we do have some formulas that we use to help you decide whether this is the wisest thing to tell your spouse or not. Typically, generally speaking, we're all for total honesty, openness, transparency, and vulnerability, generally speaking. But there can be situations where that that's actually going to work against you. Now, I, I, I don't have time to explain all that here, so maybe it was not fair to even bring it up since I can't explain it. But it is the kind of thing that one of our coaches is familiar with, and he or she can help you work through that. Mm-hmm. Or you can look for more podcasts that we do, look for more information. Um, people can subscribe, for example, to our YouTube channel where we talk about all these kinds of things as well, right? Yeah. So on YouTube, you can go youtube.com, search for Marriage Helper, and subscribe there. But also here on Facebook, there's a bell looking notification thing on our videos. And if you press that bell, and turn your notifications on, then every time we're live, you'll get a notification and you'll be able to see us. So 
Be sure to do that as well. But other than that, we have our YouTube channel. We have podcasts on iTunes and on Google Play. Um, under Marriage Radio, you can find over 150 podcasts that we've done over the past two and a half years there. And then articles on marriagehelper.com as well. There's no end to the amount of resources we have, which is another reason that coaching can be so valuable. Right. And, and if you want to ask a question about, okay, how do we know when we should tell and shouldn't tell? Mm -hmm. If you ask enough questions about that down below right now, for example, we can make that a future podcast. Yeah. It'll be at least three weeks out mm -hmm. because we have the next two planned. Mm -hmm. But if you really want to know when should you tell and when should you keep your mouth shut, <laughs> we'll actually talk about those principles if you ask us about those. Yeah, for sure. So we've been talking about the person who could be going through infatuation personally, but let's shift it because mm -hmm. that's probably not the person looking for help right now. It could be, especially if they feel really guilty, Right. but let's also shift it to there's the spouse. So in my mm -hmm. situation, it would be Rob. Rob, mm -hmm. what would he be noticing if anything changing in me and what could he do about it? Okay. When a person starts becoming involved with somebody else, mm -hmm. There's not just a clear cut formula like if A happens, B happens, C happens, then definitely they're involved with somebody else. But there are a whole list of things that you can examine. As a matter of fact, I recently did a YouTube video. It's about 15 or 16 minutes long, something like that, where I give several things to look for. Mm -hmm. And you can say, wow, if enough of these happening are happening, it may well be that my spouse is involved. I'll just give you a couple of examples here. I, I can't replicate that entire YouTube thing that we did that you can subscribe to. Um, but things such as if there's missing time, like he said, he'd be home at right after work, but he got home at 10 PM and he said, Oh, I wound up going and talking to some of my buddies. Okay. That in and of itself, a time or two may not mean anything, but if it becomes, starts becoming a pattern, if there's missing money, like, wow, you know, there's money missing here and money missing there. I don't know where that went. If at that same time, their emotions change. What I mean is they even, they either become friendlier, more bubbly, more outgoing, and, and you can't see why all of a sudden that change occurred or just the opposite, surly, angry, distant. In other words, some emotional change that doesn't make sense in and of itself. Now, remember one or two of these things happening may not mean anything. We're looking for a pattern here, a series of things. Um, if your sex life changes, you say, what do you mean? Either it gets better, yes, that can also be one of them, or it gets dramatically worse in the sense that your spouse doesn't want to make love to you anymore. If, if your sanity starts being questioned, it's like, what? Like if you ask questions, the answers aren't just dodging anymore, but the answers are basically accusing you. What's the matter with you? I already told you about that. Why are you asking that again? Are you, is something happening with you? Or what do you mean asking questions about her? She's your best friend. How could you think like that? And they actually start throwing everything back at you, trying to get you to question your own logic, your own wisdom, your own sanity, those kinds of things. Now there's several other things as well. Now, if you listen just to those three or four I just gave and think, oh, my spouse is involved with somebody else, that may not be the case. I just give you a very short list. I do suggest you find, and you tell them again, please, how to find us on YouTube. And you look for that yeah. particular video where I give you more. Now, if a lot of those things are happening, then it may well be your spouse is now becoming emotionally, if not sexually involved with another person. Now, if that happens, or it just may be that you stumble on it. 
Like yeah. you, you just accidentally find the information that blows it all apart. Oh my goodness, he or she's involved with that. Yeah. I guess then the question becomes, if you know, what do you do then, right? Well, before we get to that. Okay, before we get to that. 90% of viewers are probably right now thinking, yep, my spouse is involved with someone else if they don't already know. So if you're questioning it, should you go looking for it? <sighs> now, that's a tough question. When you say, should you go looking for it? If you're going to do things like hiring a private detective or sneaking a GPS device into his or her car that he or she doesn't know about or sneaking at night to get into his or her phone or email, if you're going to do that, uh, be prepared to divorce. Now, I'm serious when I say that because you see, if, if you do something surreptitiously, if you're sneaking around behind his or her back and then they catch you doing that, like hiding the GPS in his or her car, that kind of thing, the conversation is not going to be about what they're doing, even if you catch them. The conversation is going to be about how dare you do that. And rather than being about their faults or what their actions are, it's going to be about how evil and terrible you are. And that's all they're going to focus on. And they're going to use that in all likelihood to justify leaving you. So if you're ready for a divorce, go ahead and get the private detective, hide the GPS, whatever you want to do and get that information and use it in the divorce. But if you're not ready for a divorce, doing those kinds of things, if you're caught in all likelihood, that's gonna work against you. Now, are there cases where it actually has led to people saying, you're right, I'm caught, let me do the right thing? Yeah, but those are the rarities. Those are not the way it typically works. So going looking for it is probably not a good idea if you're gonna do it secretly. Now. It's your choice. You can do what you wish. Uh, I know that people are curious. Like, I just want to have some peace one way or the other. Mm -hmm. I want to know if he is. I want to know if she isn't. I really want to know. And I get that. I understand. But the way you go about that can really backfire big time. I get the GPS tracker on the car. I get hiring a private detective. But the phone is what I don't I would get. ask permission. But see, here's the thing. <laughs> at least, at least this is the way it's been in my marriage is that we both, I mean, the phone is just something I have access to his, he has access to mine. He knows my passcode. I know his, it's never been something. And maybe it's because of this. Maybe it's because we entered into it with, you should be able to look at whatever I'm doing. Cause I don't want to have to hide anything. Now, if that's the way it has been, then go look, even if you think they're cheating. If that's the way it has been, because then if the other person responds like, how dare you? It's like, well, no, we, we've always been this way. So if you're having to hack into the phone, break into that's it, correct. you don't know the passcode. That's what if I'm you're saying. doing things like that, that's more so. That's what, what I'm talking, talking about. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Most often the, the way that people are caught is that somebody else comes and tells you. Yeah. Now, if somebody else comes and tells you your husband's cheating on you with her or your wife's cheating on you with him, don't necessarily believe it. Mm. People love rumors. They love spreading mm. junk. Now they may be telling you the truth, but take it with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. And then if you sit down with your husband or wife, remember if you, if you're trying to find out by having a conversation and you sit down and go, Sally said that you're cheating, tell me about it. Then the person's going to defend himself or herself. That's just the way it goes. Right. People react much better when they don't feel they're being attacked. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have heard these kinds of things, or if you think there's pretty good evidence that your spouse is uh, 
is cheating on you, or is it at least emotionally involved with somebody else? The better way that's more likely to get an honest response, I'm not saying that it necessarily will, but that's more likely to get an honest response is when you sit down, when you're in a situation where there's not stressed. In other words, don't try to do it in a five minute car ride to the theater. Make it where that your phones are off, you're sitting down, you're having a real conversation, it can be comfortable and relaxed, and then rather than attacking, you just say something like, you know, the other day I picked up your phone uh, because we've always done that. I was looking for something else and I saw a text from, and, and uh, it hurt me deeply. I just want to try to understand why you have that relationship with her mm. to the point that it hurts me or why you have that relationship with him to the point that, that it hurts me. Or if it's not that, say somebody else told you, and, and you believe the other person, you think he or she is reputable, they're not just trying to spread gossip, that there's some reality to what's going on there, then you can actually sit there and in that calm conversation, not where you're attacking, but just say, you know, I heard something of the day and it deeply hurts me and I'm sure you can understand why. I love you, I'm not here to attack you, I'm here trying to understand. But I've been told that uh, you were seen the other day sitting in the back of the park under the trees with a table and you were kissing that woman or that man. I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm not trying to attack you. Of course, I am hurt. I just want to understand. Can you help me understand why? Now, notice what I did was you didn't ask them if they were doing it. Mm. Because if you ask them if they were doing it, almost always the response is no. Instead, you're saying, this is what I understand. I just want you to understand why you're doing that. Now they can still deny by going, I don't know where she came up with that. That wasn't me. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, it may be true that it wasn't them, but it's more likely if you're calm and rather than saying, are you doing that? You say, this is what you're doing. Help me understand it. Mm -hmm. It's more likely to get an honest response. Right. But you realize it goes against every human reaction to be that calm saying that. Uh huh. It's a matter of you being in control of you. And that always works better. It, it always works better if you can do that. Does it take sometimes what appears to be superhuman strength? Yeah, it does. Mm. But if, if you're a religious, religious person, pray. Pray for strength, pray for wisdom to be able to do it. If, if you're not a religious person, then do whatever you need to do. Yoga, meditation, calming yourself. I would suggest you don't drink a lot of alcohol in advance thinking that's going to calm you down because that's really going to ruin your judgment altogether. Or taking some major uh, tranquilizer, you know, you take three Xanax, which you should never do anyway, that'll kill you. Again, we don't give <laughs> medical advice. No, I'm saying don't do that and then think somehow you're going to be in control of yourself. Right. But do the best you can and if you want to deal with it. Now, if he or she actually does say, okay, let me try to help you understand. If you can keep asking questions, help me understand, I'm listening. The second you become angry, the second you attack, then expect the honesty to stop. If you can still be calm and truly try to listen to the other person, if you really want to save the marriage, that's going to set up the scenario where you're most likely to be able to do that. Mm. And understand, you in all likelihood are going to need professional help who knows what he or she is doing. Mm -hmm. Now, forgive me if this sounds judgmental, I don't mean it to, but that doesn't always mean a marriage counselor. Good marriage counselors are worth their weight in gold. They're awesome, they're amazing. But some marriage counselors aren't really trying to save the marriage, they're trying to help everybody be happy. 
So if you're going to seek a professional, if you do need a third party to help you with this, seek somebody who is pro-marriage and who's going to help do everything he or she can to help save your marriage rather than somebody that's just going to try to help you guys find happiness. Mm -hmm. Uh, Happiness is based on what's happening. We're focused on the long-term good here is to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So during this stage of infatuation, if the... If my spouse is going through this infatuation, um, is this the stage where they're angry towards me, they're very hostile, or is that next week? They may. They may. It's according to how far into phase one they are. Mm-hmm. Okay. If they've gotten up here close to phase two, which again, we'll talk about next week, but if they're close to phase two, then it may be that it's going to be all about how bad and terrible you are and it's all your fault. If you had been a good wife, I wouldn't feel the way I feel toward her. If you'd been a good husband uh, and hadn't been dominating and cruel and mean or whatever words. So you may run into some hostility if they're very strong and high in that phase. You may actually run into hostility. The thing to do is, number one, don't try to defend yourself. Because as soon as you try to defend yourself, no, no, I didn't do that. Then it's going to be an argument and nothing is gained. Number two, don't necessarily believe everything the other person says about you. They may actually believe it at the moment. They may truly have convinced themselves that you're blank, whatever blank is. Don't necessarily believe that you are. Now, you may be. Don't deny that either. Don't deny reality. But don't go into total panic thinking, oh, you're right. I've been this terrible, evil, wicked person. Uh, I don't deserve you. Don't do that. Be calm. Listen. Be strong. Mm, That's good. So the main things that someone can focus on during this time, especially the spouse who is not the one in infatuation, the one wanting to make the marriage work, wanting to fix the marriage. What is most important for them to be doing if their spouse is in infatuation? Okay. It's to be calm. It's to be calm, not panic. Hmm. Don't cling. Don't beg. Don't push. Don't whine. Don't plead. None of that works. Don't argue. Don't attack if you want to save the marriage. Now, if you're ready to get out of the marriage, then do whatever the heck you want to do. But but if you really want to save this thing, don't defend yourself. Don't argue. Don't whine. Don't beg. Don't plead. Now, we can give you a whole series of things that you should do, but we don't have time here to do that. Mm -hmm. You can find some of those by coming to our website, Mm -hmm. marriagehelper.com. Or you can call and talk to one of our client representatives. If you know this is happening, uh, they can guide you toward whatever resources we have Mm -hmm. that's best for you. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I hope you understand during or from this or during this time, if you're the spouse who's either in infatuation or the other spouse who's experiencing it from the outside, is that you're not alone. This happens a lot, yes, a lot, a lot, way more than we than we wished it would happen. But you're not alone in this, and uh, even more than that, there's absolutely hope that your marriage can make it through this, that it can be fixed, that it can be stronger than ever. Yep. Last week, after one of our the after our Facebook Live, there were some comments afterwards of someone saying, "Don't believe it. Once a cheater, always a cheater. You should never go back to someone yeah. who's had an affair." And that always breaks our heart to hear. Because we have seen so many marriages saved where it's not, that's just not true. It's just not true. It's just not. When you hear a person say something like that, typically it's because he or she's been really hurt Mm -hmm. somewhere, somehow. And now they're forcing their situation onto you. Mm -hmm. Don't let them do that. That's why sometimes when you post something on Facebook and you get 300 responses and 
half of them are ridiculous because they're forcing their situation onto you. Mm-hmm. You're not them. Or what they've seen with somebody else they're trying to force on you, and you're not them either. Mm-hmm. We get so many people come to us who even the marriage counselor said, it's hopeless, you should yeah. divorce, there's no way for this to work. And now these people are still happily married years and years later because they came to somebody who actually believes in marriage, which is us, and we help them work it through. We help them fix that. We help them be in love with each other again. Obviously, when I say help, we don't do that. I can't solve your problems. I can't make you be in love with each other again. Nobody that works with us can. We don't have that ability, and we would be liars if we claimed that we did. No, we always tell the truth, but I'll guarantee you there are so many couples that once they learn how even after the marriage counselor said, you have no hope, you need a divorce, are now very happily married to each other. Perfectly? No. <laughs> There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. That doesn't exist. But happily married to each other in spite of their flaws. Mm-hmm. And, and we love seeing that success happen with couples that mm-hmm. the people have given up on. Absolutely. Sometimes I feel like we're the people that folks come to when everybody else has told them there is no hope. Sometimes you feel like that? Sometimes. <laughs> I feel like that all the time. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, and, and three out of four of the couples that come through our intensive, for example, mm-hmm. wind up saving their marriages and staying married and, and being happy with each other. Three out of four. Mm-hmm. And probably, what, eight or nine out of ten that walk in the door, one of them is saying, there's no way, I'm not staying in this, it's over, nothing you can say or do. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we don't make anybody do anything, ever. Mm-mm. We just teach, we share, we help people understand, and, and it's amazing when people grasp that, when they get it, about how things can change, even if they are, quote, madly in love, end quote, with somebody else. Mm. They can still be saved. That's so good. Well, thank you, Joe. I'm looking forward to next week. We'll be talking about stage two of falling madly in love, stage two of limerence, what probably, if your spouse is in an affair, this is probably the stage where you discover it in all likelihoods and the kind of things that he or she is saying yeah. and doing. And you're going, what happened to that man or woman that I married? Mm-hmm. Who is this person that he or she has become? And why are they being so mean to me and doing all the crazy things they're doing? Well, we'll help you understand that in the next session. We will. If you have questions that you want to go ahead and email into us for us to hopefully cover next week, you can email those to us at live at marriagehelper.com. That's L-I-V-E at marriagehelper.com. We want to be sure that we cover some of the situations y'all are seeing mm-hmm. and and answer some of those questions, give you the guidance the best we can on next week's show. Well, Dr. Joe, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Kimberly. See you guys next week.